0: you are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Just turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, page 2 of the Pew Bible, <clears throat> As a reminder, we looked at this same passage last week, and I focused there more on the creation of man and woman separately, ways in which they uh, have similarities, and ways that they have differences. And while we touched on some of the aspects of marriage, uh, today we'll be going back to this passage, particularly looking on verse 24 about the institution of marriage. Uh, But let's begin at chapter 2, verse 18, and I'll have us read through verse 25. Now let's stand as we read the scripture passage for today, (coughs) hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God informed formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them.
1: marriage has fallen on
0: hard times lately. And as I say that, you might immediately think of same-sex marriage. And yes, that is an opponent to the biblical institution of marriage. But I would suggest that the institution of marriage is far greater enemies than same-sex marriage. If you do some statistics or searching on the statistics, You'll see that in the last century, the marriage rate has declined drastically. In other words, less and less people are getting married. And those who do get married tend to get married more and more and more later in life. Instead of sort of living out a life together as husband and wife, it's almost like I heard one author suggest sort of a, a final capstone, the last piece of your life that you created for yourself. And of course, I think, intimately related to a lot of this is that the enemies of cohabitation and fornication are very common. Even among people who do go on to eventually get married, uh, there's this beginning of, of a shift where it's like you, society says, cohabitation, in other words, moving in and living together, is is like, best a stage before you get married, and that certainly is not the biblical view of course add to all this the continued prevalence of divorce where somewhere in the 40 to 50 percent of marriages end in divorce um, interesting i've been hearing um, that that number has started to improve a little bit but i wonder if it's improved only because how I many less and less people are actually getting married um, the ones who actually are finally getting married have a commitment maybe to the the uh the institution that maybe otherwise people otherwise didn't have even then it's still not a great number so so yes same-sex aka gay marriage is certainly a contemporary problem we are facing that problem for the institution of marriage it is something uh, to be concerned about but it is certainly not the biggest problem by any means And I pray that today's biblical reflection on the institution of marriage will promote a renewed zeal for this institution. And so then today we come specifically to consider verse 24. This is the formal institution of marriage in the Bible. And I reminded you last week, it's right here at the very beginning. That's got to show its importance and significance. So right here, verse 24, uh, and what I want us, as we think about verse 24, In our first point for today, I want us to hone in on that word therefore. Therefore. Usually an important word when you find the therefore, right? You ask what's it therefore, right? Therefore, begins verse 24. That connects the verse, verse 24, to what had just happened with God making woman out of man. To say it another way, verses 18 through 23 describe this historical fact: how God made Eve out of Adam. But then verse 24 makes an application of that fact to the ongoing institution of marriage. To say that yet another way, verse 24 isn't explicitly even about Adam and Eve. You know it's not about Adam and Eve because Adam didn't have any parents to leave, and verse 24 mentions a man leaving his parents. Verse 24 isn't explicitly about Adam and Eve, but about every human marriage after Adam and Eve. But of course it is, in a sense, about Adam and Eve because of this word, therefore. It's saying that what Adam and Eve were, therefore, become a pattern for every marriage, every human marriage after that. So verse 24 is about Adam and Eve in that sense. What Adam and Eve were, that's what every human marriage now is supposed to try to reflect an image. There, Adam and Eve would to be the precedence
1: upon which the model of marriage, the marriage institution, is founded. And so that applies not just to marriage specifically, but also about their differences as
0: man and woman, the ones we discussed last week right, what was true about those differences between
1: man and woman, therefore that comes into play in marriage as well, according to verse 24.
0: Human marriages in today are to express and reflect the sort of similarities and differences that we studied last Sunday with regard to Adam and Eve, then within the context of marriage. So think with me a little further on this. Therefore, on how on how the marriage institution is to try to image Adam and Eve. Verse twenty four says that marriage is to be or to. Verse twenty four says that marriage is is to be between one man and one woman. That's what verse twenty four says. That's because the therefore connection. That's because Adam and Eve were that one man and one woman from the beginning. Verse. 23. Of course, that would then speak against all the ways that man has tried to pervert marriage today, whether it be in polygamy, homosexuality, bestiality, any other thing that might they try to think of between now and going forward. It seems like they keep trying to expand the definition. Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman because it's modeled after the union of the first man and the first woman. Again, that's the therefore here. Thinking more about that therefore, verse 24 says that a man, when he gets married, is to leave his father and mother. Again, Adam didn't have a father and mother. That's sort of the picture then. Adam didn't have a father and mother. He's, you know They start as husband and wife. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother it all began just with Adam and Eve, so that's in the marriage institution as well now they image that similarly verse 24 says a husband and a wife are to hold fast in cleaving relationally with each other there's a there's a cleaving a, a, a bonding relationally with each other again we saw that last week with Eve before Eve Adam's all alone But God made Eve to be a helper, fit for him, so that he wouldn't be all alone anymore, but he would have a match, a complement, a a corresponding partner. How Eve was made as that uh, something fit for Adam, it's why the marriage institution involves husband and wife being fit, fitting together, cleaving together, building that life together. So too, verse 24 says the husband and the wife are to become one flesh. That's because, as Adam says in verse 23, he and Eve were one flesh. Stop and think about what this is saying here. Eve was literally flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of Adam's bone, and he's saying that that's true before their sexual union. Remember, he she came out of him, right? So they're saying that the the marital union is because of this fact that Eve literally was one with Adam even before that. Therefore, that's the therefore bringing out this idea. So every human marriage is to be a picture then of what Adam and Eve were. One man, one woman, leave, cleave, and become one flesh. And in so doing, they picture Adam and Eve, who were that first married couple. Of course, I do want to remind us, something we talked about last week in our study, is we spoke of male headship in marriage, and I'll be touching on this throughout our passage as well today, that male headship in marriage was rooted in the way that God made Adam here and Eve here in Genesis. We had noted last week that man was formed first, then the woman. We had noted that it said that the woman was made for the man not the man for the woman. We referenced how 1 Corinthians 11 drew out that this was an application toward toward male headship and
1: marriage. We noted that um, um, 1, Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11 made that point for us. I think you can see
0: it here about 1 Corinthians 11, but 1 Corinthians 11 brought out that point. And so, The marriage institution here at verse 24, it it reminds us of why this is the case, that with that therefore idea, what Adam and Eve were, their creational relationship to each other becomes that pattern, becomes that basis for all human marriages. What they were is what we seek to be in marriage going forward. Adam was the head of Eve. Therefore, in marriage, the man is to be the head of the wife. That's because human marriage is to be a picture of Adam and Eve's relationship. So again, I think this is all embodied in this word,
1: therefore. And I'll talk more about headship in a little bit.
0: Let me have one additional application
1: note here with this
0: therefore point. Jesus, we saw in Mark and we saw last week in Matthew, spoke against divorce. By referencing this passage in Genesis, He said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is an institution that's so much of God that whenever someone gets married, Jesus says it's God
1: joining them together.
0: That's surely also founded on the fact of Adam and Eve. It was God who joined Adam and Eve together. Jesus says that human marriages continue to reflect that that when two people consent to be married, it's ultimately God who has joined them together. Let's turn now to our second point. I want to unpack the three things it says here that are be happening in a marriage. I mentioned in your outline, three verbs. There's, I'm referring to the leaving, the cleaving, and becoming one flesh. The leaving, the cleaving, and becoming one flesh. Let's, let's, let's unpack those a little bit. I already mentioned them. In context of the therefore, but just sort of in reference, now I want to actually think through what each of them means and, and has application for us. Think first about the leaving idea. Marriage involves a leaving that takes place. It speaks of how marriage is establishing a new social unit. It says that the man leaves his parents to be married to his wife. Of course, the same happens for the woman. Uh, she leaves her parents to be married to. Your husband. Before that, before you get married like that, right? You're, you're, you're born into a family. And, and to your father and, and your mother and whatever siblings you may have. Together, you're a family. But when you grow up and go off
1: and get married,
0: there needs to be some kind of a break there. Your allegiances will change in some sense. Now the husband and the wife, they're starting their own new immediate family. Now, of course, this leaving idea does not mean that they'll never see their parents again or have anything to do with it. That's not what it means, obviously. But it is about establishing a new family unit with a sort of new chain of command. While they should always still honor their parents and spend time with their parents and cultivate that relationship, uh, they're no longer under their parents' formal authority. There's a leaving that
1: goes on here.
0: And so instead, the new husband and wife have their own new authority structure, where the husband husband will serve as the head of that marriage. May this be a reminder to the parents
1: of any newlyweds uh, to remember to respect those boundaries. The wife needs to look to her husband
0: then as her head then, not to her parents. That can be a common temptation to a newlywed sort of the instinct to keep going to mom and dad instead of now going to their husband. And husbands, you need to uh, really protect uh, your marriage from either parents who might want to try to run your life and um, especially protect your wife from that if it's your parents who are trying to impose their, their ideas on your marriage. Uh, uh, so husband, you to be on guard against that. But of course, a wise husband and wife. Will still find plenty of ways to be gleaning wisdom from their parents involving them in their lives honoring them but there's this idea important idea of a leaving next idea then is this cleaving idea and uh, you may have noticed if you're looking carefully in your pew bible that the word cleaving isn't there but but i'm pulling from the king james translation because that's such a memorable translation of this verse it's got this verse of of cleaving This idea of holding fast to his wife is the cleaving idea here. This cleaving is about becoming one.
1: The unifying of two lives into one life. When you get married, you begin to live together.
0: You merge all your belongings together, all your finances together, everything together. You pursue being one, not just in all those outward ways, but even inwardly, spiritually, emotionally, your vision for the future together. you Try to become one, united. Now, of course, to clarify, cleaving is something that is not just, it doesn't just happen. It's not just perfected the moment you say, I do. Be nice, right? But that's not the way it works. It's a lifelong pursuit of marital oneness.
1: And you'll make a lot of mistakes along the way because you're both sinners. But I have seen many a problem in marriage when
0: the couple tries to overly maintain separate things.
1: Cleaving is a pursuit of oneness.
0: And so the third thing it says about marriage is the idea of becoming one flesh. Now, this could have been embodied in the previous one about cleaving, and in some sense it is a part of that, but it's of such importance to the marriage that it's called out here on its own. It's of such an integral feature of marriage that we speak of marriage, typically, only of being officially consummated after that physical union has taken place. It's also so central to marriage, that as we learn more clearly elsewhere, this is the only biblically acceptable place for sexual activity to be expressed for humanity. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral
1: and adulterous. That means all, all sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful.
0: Culture needs to hear that. This is surely one major reason why marriage is so neglected today because so many people break that. So many people cohabitate and become one flesh outside of marriage. And that is wrong. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that sexual intimacy with a prostitute is wrong
1: because you're becoming one with someone who's not your spouse. flip side, the positive side of this, is that this one flesh aspect of marriage is supposed to be a
0: sweet blessing. A sweet blessing to the married couple. They're to bless each other with one another. Not with holiness, but rather delighting in this together. While it is certainly related to procreation, it's also intended for pleasure. It's a blessing from God. So having thought about this leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh, I think this would be an appropriate time just to spend a moment commenting about the nature of male headship in marriage. I mentioned it a lot last week. I've been mentioning it here again today. And I find that uh, there could be uh, some perversions among Christians trying to live out these ideas. uh, But I think it would be helpful to sort of think a little bit further about them. And one way I thought I'd get our head around this today Maybe that's fun intended, we're going to have a headship. Um, is to note this, just to sort of think about it from this angle. Not all biblical authority structures are the same. The Bible gives us different kinds of institutions that involve authority structures. And they're not all identical. And if we equate one with the other, we're going to be foolish. Listen up, this is very important. Think of some of the main authority structures that we find in the Bible. I'll give you a few examples: civil government, church leadership, and parents with their children. Those are three, I could give other examples. Let's let's just think about those three for a moment. As a comparing contrast with regard to headship and marriage. These different authority structures, they don't all have the same scope of authority, nor do they have the same tools to enforce their authority nor do they have even the same distance between the people in authority and the people under their authority. Take civil government, for example. They especially judge matters of conflict between neighbors, and the Bible says they have a physical sword to enforce their authority. And of course, the distance between government and citizen tends to be fairly, fairly good. But then go to church authority. The elders exercise authority only in matters that are moral and spiritual and the bible says they only have a spiritual sword and the distance tends to be quite a bit closer between church leadership and church member or they take family parents with their children parents as the authority of their children parents are supposed to lovingly chasten their children to rear them in godliness And even the Bible says, for example, Proverbs talks a lot about it, that they have a rod to do so. That they are to make use of corporal discipline in looking to rear and raise their kids. There's a very close relationship between parent and child. And the discipline is all to be about loving correction and loving rearing. But now what about marriage? The institution of marriage and the authority structure within marriage. Nowhere does the Bible say that the husband has a sword or a rod to use against his wife to enforce his leadership. If you try to find any sort of tool that a husband has to enforce his leadership, you really have to go back to the Old Testament case law to try to glean some insight. And by the way, I have, there are people who advocate for a husband to use some sort of corporal discipline against their wife. If you haven't already figured out, I'm I'm not on board with that idea. Uh, It's not something we find taught scripturally. If you find any sort of tool uh, that a husband has to enforce his leadership, you go back to the Old Testament case. I'll try to glean some insights. There you can find some cases of conflict between a husband and a wife where a husband brings, on one particular case, has to bring his accusation against his wife to the priest and the priest has to adjudicate. Or other circumstances involve the husband bringing his concern before the elders, and the elders have to adjudicate between the husband and the wife. I can only find one place in the Old Testament case law where you saw a husband really acting acting sort of uh, uh, on his own uh, to basically essentially punish his wife. And that's in writing her a certificate of divorce to send her away. And we read it in, in the Gospel. The New Testament has Jesus saying that that's not something Moses was committing. It was actually a reflection of the hardness of heart, and, and really what's going on there is there's extra legislation to deal with the fact that husbands do these sorts of things. It doesn't mean that the Bible
1: is saying that was a good way of handling it. So my point is or of course Jesus says there, marriage is supposed to be between man and woman lifelong. Right? Don't
0: go divorcing, Anyway, my point here, as I sort of prepared to contrast authority structures, authority structure marriage is different than those other structures. The husband does not wield some special weapon to enforce his will on his wife. And that's surely because I think this is the reason why. It's because of the nature of oneness in marriage. That's why the most proper biblical language about the husband as an authority in his marriage is in terms of headship. You know, the Bible doesn't say the man is the king of his marriage or the dictator of the marriage. I must confess, sometimes I, I joke and refer to that in my family. I'm to a revolutionary dictator, but that's just a joke. <laughs> it's headship. Headship is the imagery of a united body.
1: If the distance between citizen and governor is great, and the distance between parents and children are close, the distance between husband and wife is supposed to be a negligible thing because they're oneness. The head of a body should love and take care of his body. And if the
0: rest of the body wants to be healthy, it should not keep walking her head
1: into a wall. Right? <laughs>
0: Husbands and wives, we need to work together and follow the biblical guidance on how to walk in life, and that includes learning more about what that what that relationship does look like, having
1: a husband be ahead of the, the marriage. Well, in our final point then for today, I want us to reflect on the marriage
0: institution, really in a uniquely Christian way referring now to that passage I read from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5:32, 5, Paul quotes Genesis here, verse 24. He makes an application of this thing we're talking about today, this institution of marriage. He makes an application to Christ and the church. He says that the institution of marriage can be seen as a mysterious picture of Christ and the church. Paul calls us, to think that way about our marriages, so that our marriages can become modeled after Christ and the church. So Paul, there in Ephesians five, he calls husbands—husbands, husbands, pay attention—sacrificially love your wife like Christ loved the church when He died for the church to sanctify the church. And so He calls husbands to be like Christ in sacrificially loving in, 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 in sacrificial loving leadership that's looking to bless and care for his wife. Paul goes on to say this means that a husband should love his wife, should care for her as his own body, because she is. As a side note, that whole notion, care for your wife as your own body, which she is, again another argument against a husband employing physical punishment against his wife. I think that's like hacking yourself, right? I mean,
1: that's just, that's, you know, anyways, I digress.
0: Paul in Ephesians 5 called the wife to submit to her husband as the church is called to submit to Christ. Paul explains here in Ephesians 5, that means as you would submit to Jesus, that's how you should endeavor to submit to your husband. Now, a wife might say that her husband is no Jesus. Of course, that's absolutely true.
1: But
0: Paul says that doesn't give you a reason not to show him respect. Same thing similarly to husbands. Your wife is not perfect, and she won't always submit to you perfectly. But that does not give you a reason not to sacrificially
1: love her and care for her endeavoring to do so as Christ into the church. I would add to this thought that our final verse in our passage today from Genesis
0: verse 25 mentions how Adam and Eve at this point were naked and not ashamed that sets you up for what's going to come in chapter 3 of Genesis and that's where sin comes into play it's foreshadowing how they will fall into sin they'll bear the shame of their sin and so we know now
1: after that, human sinfulness has affected marriage,
0: but it's also why Christ needed to die for the church's bride. Christ Jesus gave himself up to redeem
1: the church, his bride, from all their sin. There's a redemptive message here for us. Though I, I do think of, um, go back to Genesis 2 and 3.
0: Think of what could have happened, what Adam could have done with regard to Eve. Could not have Adam protected his wife from that serpent to keep her from falling into sin in the first place? Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he take a sword against that serpent? And even once she did sin, instead of joining with her sin and ultimately blaming her for it, Could he not have said to God, take me instead? I will die for her in in her place. But of course, he did not. And so he needed a second Adam who would come and give up his life for his bride, the church. And so Paul here in Ephesians 5, this idea is that our marriages can be a beautiful picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. Think about that and how we started off today. Go back to point one, the therefore point. Marriage institution, right here in verse 24, it said that therefore marriages today were to image and reflect Adam and Eve. Now Christians are told our marriages
1: should reflect the second Adam and his bride, the church. Let us indeed seek to image and reflect Christ in the church, in our marriages. Stepping back for a sort of even broader application then, appreciate that if you are a
0: member of Christ's church, you have a oneness with Jesus Christ. Because if Christ is the head of the church's bride, that means we are the body of Christ, individually we are each body parts of that body. And so my hope is, as we're talking today about marriage, it can also help us to appreciate the wonderful oneness we have with Jesus. And in that regard, you have a wonderful reciprocal application that, that we get from our passage today, especially when you read it in light of Ephesians, Our human marriages, remind us of our union with Christ. And our union with Christ reminds us of our human marriages. May that reciprocal application mean that we're encouraged today, we're built up in all of that today, in our, in, our being in union with Christ, and in our marriages. There's a lot of application we can draw from this. And it's certainly what our world
1: needs today. Our world needs a higher view of marriage. Our world needs a higher view of of Jesus and Christians.
0: And may our embracing of biblical marriage serve as a testimony to the world in both places. And it's amazing that our Christian marriages can be a picture simultaneously of both,
1: And all of us can be a witness to that, to the world. As I conclude our message for today, we've remembered human sinfulness again today. And it's that sinfulness
0: which is why, surely, marriage is in such decline in our day.
1: Humanity has fallen. In many ways, the fallenness of, of humanity today we can
0: trace back to the failing of the first marriage. Can we really be surprised that humans have such a low view of marriage today when the first one's failing costs so much trouble? And yet it's wonderful to think how marriage finds a redemption of sorts by God using it here to describe Christ and the church. If that first picture of marriage in Adam and Eve got so marred, there's a redemption of sorts by now a new picture being offered for marriage, Christ and the church. And then to run with that, Genesis here, God presents Eve to Adam. Ephesians, speaks of how one day the church will be presented to Christ. The point of Ephesians there is actually, we're actually just betrothed to Christ right now. Engaged to Him. Where We haven't had the final consummation. That's yet in the future. The wedding is yet ahead. Let us look forward to that consummation when Christ returns. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray for a higher view of marriage. We pray for our society and our culture as a whole. We pray for in the church. Or would you pray for the marriages in our church that they would be such a picture of Christ in the church to one another and to the world? Would you pray for more of those pictures in our midst? And we pray, Lord, that however you see fit to bring us into various callings in our life, that we would look to live for you and glorify you, whatever station you place us in. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen.